In honor of the late, great Joel Schumacher, who passed away last week at the fine wine age of 80 years old, Adam and I have decided to tackle what stands to be his most controversial film in a filmography that boasts everything from The Lost Boys to Batman and Robin. 1993's Falling Down is a heralded departure for Schumacher, which lands at the halfway point of his career. Needless to say, time has not been kind to certain aspects of the film, especially when viewed through a MAGA hat-wearing 2020 lens. But when consumed as a mid-90s time capsule piece, the film still holds as a gripping thriller that uses a sprawling, gritty, sweat-soaked L.A. landscape as its backdrop. Moreover, it's a fish-out-of-water story and serves as a cultural tombstone for bullshit, idyllic 1950s nostalgia. In the words of Defense himself, I'm the bad guy? How'd that happen? I did everything they told me to. So we attempt to figure out bad guys, good guys, and everything in between next on Midnight Flicks. Foster is an ordinary man. Where are you going? Going home. Not this way or not. Why not? Metro rail construction, that's why not. Living in the everyday world. I don't suppose you have a couple of bucks you can give me. It wouldn't really help me out. If you give me your address, I'll mail it back on us. A patient man. Can I help you? Yes, I'd like a ham and cheese wamlet or wham fries. I'm sorry. We stop serving breakfast at 11.30. Who's running out of patience? Get some change for the phones. A peaceful man. Lord says, have to buy the whip. Who's about to be pushed? 85 cent, 85 cent. Hasn't given me enough money for the phone call. Drink, 85 cent. You pay a goal. A little too far. I stay. You mean you stole your baseball bat, but he paid for the soda? Just standing up for my rights. As a consumer. Oh, this guy's discriminating. What kind of vigilante are you? Just trying to get home to my little girl's birthday. Give us your briefcase. If everybody will stay out of my way. Here, you want a briefcase? Here's my briefcase! There's the briefcase, huh? Wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Then nobody will get hurt. Warner Brothers presents. Say, would you get off my golf course? I am! The story of an everyday guy who refused to take it one more day. So we got a nutcase with a bag full of guns. He's in Hollywood right now, and he's heading west. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but there's other people waiting to use the phone here. Now, if you go up against this guy, be careful. I think it's out of order. Somebody in a white shirt and tie gunned down a phone with three blocks from the Whammy Burger. Michael Douglas. In America, we have the freedom of speech. Come on, I want to be a bargain. I want to buy a ticket. The right to disagree. Robert Duvall. I know who this guy is. In a Joel Schumacher film. What are you doing to the street? 
We're fixing it. What the hell does it look like? See, I don't think anything's wrong with the street. I think you're just trying to justify your inflated budgets. Well, I guess so. I'll give you something to fix. What are you... Hey, Charlie! Falling down. Let's call it a day. Come on. I'm the bad guy? A tale of urban reality. Welcome to Midnight Flicks, a podcast dedicated to discussing movies relegated to a late-night purgatory. I am one of your hosts, Pat Mitchell, and joining me on this cinematic expedition, as always, is Adam Walker. Adam, thank you for waking up early to be with me today. Yeah. Well, you know, the show must go on, and I, I will suffer for our art. I can just see the, the sleep in your eyes and the bedhead now. I'm pretty sleepy. I can, I'm waking up. I can hear it in your voice. Yeah, I'm waking up a little bit right now. I, I've, I've, I've slugged down this half mug of coffee. Well, I started my day with three hours of yard work, so I'm in a different place in terms of exhaustion. That'll get the that'll get the blood moving, Daddy. It really, it really does, and it's it's a fucking scorcher today. Um, but I thought we would start today's episode with a new category that I'm calling "Off the Top," and simply put, we're gonna just have our off the top thoughts, initial reactions to whichever movie that we're discussing tonight. We're discussing. Falling Down, my favorite Joel Schumacher movie, uh, R.I.P. He just passed away last week. Um, by the time this podcast is out, it'll be two weeks ago. What were, uh, assuming that you've seen this before, I know you have, what were your initial reactions having revisited this movie? Well, you know, I had assumed I had seen this movie, um, and I had... I figured that it had been a, a long time since I had seen it prior to this. Um, but then I started thinking about it more. And especially as I was watching it, I was like, maybe I haven't seen this, which I don't know how. And the, uh, the movie was such a part of the cultural zeitgeist of the time um, that I had seen enough clips of it that, it had cobbled together in my brain, but I'm almost positive I'd seen it, but that's what I mean. It's been so long that I can't even recall when was the last time. Um, you know, I remember in the early nineties that the character of defense, um, had been kind of loomed large over the cultural landscape and was used as, as an icon, for in a variety of ways um, from there on. So yeah, I was, I was wondering going into this, what my thoughts would be considering that, you know, 28 years down the road, things have changed dramatically, not only in the world, but also for myself and, you know, my own viewpoints on things and watching this through the lens of, 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 you know, what's going on current currently in this country. I was going to, I was going to be interesting to say the least. So that's what I'll say about that. Sure. And, and that's an, in, that's an interesting, uh, you're tackling it from a, the opposite end of the spectrum from where I'm tackling it. Um, because when we were 
first conceiving this podcast, I, I had told you that there was like a, a vault of five movies that have been locked in to where I might be five, five, six beers deep on the couch. And I just want to watch like something that I've seen a million times. And there's like five movies that I, that I go to in that respect. And it's speaking of episodes that we've already done. Waterworld is one of those five, but falling down is also on that list. Actually running man. If we're talking about another <laughs> episode that we've done running man's also on the list, but falling down, I've seen dozens and dozens, probably hundreds of times. Cause I watch it all the time. I watch it every year. I watch it multiple times. Um, I absolutely adore it. I love it. It's, it's so quirky and weird. Uh, like it's such an oddball Schumacher movie also specifically. Uh, it's so different from everything he's done, but I guess my initial reactions w- would be that I don't identify with, with either of the most uh, vocal critics of this, of this movie. I'm somewhere in the middle. There's obviously the dumb fuck idiots that see and are bolstered by defense's actions and see him as an anti-hero of sorts. I do not think that Schumacher's intention was to make him an anti-hero. And in my personal opinion, I, do, I just don't see him painted as such in the movie. I think the third act really quells any, any sort of... If, that, if the movie was going that way, the third act puts that fire out completely. But then there's the other people, you know that see this, that almost agree with, with the anti-hero perspective, but condemn it for it. So, you know, they see this as a a fascistic, uh, you know, fantasy of sorts where it's just like angry white guy killing minorities, uh, get out, go back to your country kind of mentality. Yeah. I, I, I'm somewhere in the middle though. I just, right. I, I don't, I don't see this movie as that. I just, I don't see it as as that. It's more complex than that. And there's Prendergast. There's so much else going on in this movie. I think to boil it down, it is a fish out of water story. And it is the death of 1950s bullshit nostalgia of like the white picket fence and the two and a half children and the, like that whole idyllic thing. I think Schumacher is saying time's, the times are fucking changed, man. And if you don't, if you don't evolve with the times, then you just become lost or to move, to use something from the movie, you're no longer economically viable. <laughs> gotcha. You, you never changed with the times and you're holding on to bullshit ideals from the fifties. And, and it's, it's 1993, baby. There's like, we got so much more going on now. So I really do think his perspective is, is that of, Someone that never changed with the times and and has had a mental break because of it. Yeah. And I was definitely, you know, I was trying to view this critically at the, at the time that I watched it in a way that wasn't pigeonholing it um, in what I my conception of it was. Because I felt like there was something in it that it was trying to offer what would be seen as a nuanced viewpoint on, um, you know, cultural changes in the world. 
Um, but there was definitely times where I was, I was, I, I was, I wasn't able to, to get beyond this idea that even with someone trying to have this critique on this character and what they represented culturally in more contemporary times, it was still hard for me to get around this idea that it was coming from a white privileged male position, it, you know, and I really was not trying to fall in that fucking trap. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. that's where it's, I'm glad that we're doing this and I'm glad that you have what I feel is going to be a more, um, yeah, nuanced perspective or a more, uh, uh, robust, uh, critique of this movie. So that's and, what I'll you know, say. It's what, the reason why we're even discussing it or that it would be on this podcast is because we don't discuss perfect movies. We discuss flawed movies, but also right. flawed, fun movies that you would that you could watch at midnight, hence the name. But this, you know, I'm not saying this movie is fun. I but I do find fun aspects of it. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff that did not age. We'll get into that in the bad. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I think overall, as a time capsule piece of 1993 L- L.A. race riot landscape, I think it does a really good job of yeah. of portraying that city and that time in a in an interesting light. All defense. MAGA bullshit aside. Yeah, great. I'm really looking forward to talking about it. So let's uh, dive right in then, shall we? So our main man defense uh, for a quick plot description for those that may not know. He is, quote unquote, coming home. (laughs) He just (laughs) wants to go home with the opening shot is him in gridlock traffic. He gets out of his car. And someone's like, where are you going, man? And he's like, I'm going home. He's uh, going to see his daughter on her birthday. Um, but much to his ex-wife's chagrin, she wants nothing to do with him because he is a domestic abuser piece of shit. Uh, and that's one of the aspects of this movie where, you know, that makes him unlikable. And they drive that home routinely of how scared she is of him. So if there's any sort of anti-hero thing going on, I just like to point these little things along the way that no, I'm leaning more towards that Schumacher meant for him to be actually quite unlikable. Yeah. Um, But that is the nutshell of the movie. You also have Prendergast played by Robert Duvall, who is on his last day of work um, as a as a detective and on the LAPD force, and he gets somehow roped into this case through a series of people that have run-ins with him, and he gets one last case for the road, and he catches he catches his man, so yeah. to speak, before his retirement. So there's those two aspects. First of all, I love a good <laughs> like just. I'm going to traverse this landscape, whether it be cross country or just cross uh, LA. I love a good, I'm going to traverse this landscape and, and, and see what that entails. But I also love a good, 
this is this movie takes place from the morning and the, it ends in the evening. It's one day. It's a, it's a movie that takes place over the course of one day. I love just a one day movie that that that's always super fun. But also the aspect of you know it's Prendergast last day. I love the the, the LAPD shit is is so wackadoo as well. But yeah. I, I, I love that <laughs> that aspect as well. Um, in terms of money made reviews that sort of stuff this movie made uh 41 million against the 25 million dollar budget so it was successful um fun fact it knocked out groundhog's day out of the top spot when it was released so oh really i did not know that <laughs> yeah groundhog's day was the number one movie in america for several weeks running until this movie came out um two two Critic, uh, critical uh, perspectives that I would like to read because I love both of them. And one of them is from an unlikely source. The first of which is from Vincent Canby of the New York Times. He called it the most interesting all-out commercial American film of the year to date and one that will function much like a Rorschach. Is that how you pronounce that? A Rorschach? Yeah, Rorschach. Like where you're looking at the, yeah. Will yeah. function much like a Rorschach test to expose the secrets of those who watch it. I love that last line. It functions as a Rorschach test to expose the secrets of those who watch it. If you watch this and you're like, I really identify with defense, that's a Rorschach test to be like, oh, it, your test results have come back and you're a fascist dickhead. Wow. Yeah. Like, cool. The, you're <laughs> like, that came back positive. But if you watch this movie and you're like, fuck this guy, like you, you're, you identify with Prendergast and you want him to catch his man and, and it's a, manhunt kind of movie then you know that's a different kind of result for your rorschach test right um i love that review though and the second is from uh roger ebert um i think he eloquently does a very good job of of succinctly critiquing this movie he says some will even find it racist because the targets of the film's heroes are of the film's hero are African-American, Latino, and Korean, with a few whites thrown in for balance. Both of these approaches represent a facile reading of the film, which is actually about a great sadness which turns into madness and which can afflict anyone who is told, after many years of hard work, that he is unnecessary and irrelevant. What is fascinating about the Douglas character, as written and played, is the course of sadness, the core of sadness in his soul. Yes, by the time we meet him, he has gone over the edge, but there is no exhilaration to his rampage, no release. He seems wary, confused, and in his actions, he unconsciously follows scripts that he may have learned from the movies or the news where other frustrated misfits vent their rage on innocent bystanders. Yeah. That's a great, that's a, the, he, he knocked it out of the park in terms of d- description wise, that he did a really good job of succinctly putting that into words that I actually struggled to put in myself. So uh, chalk this one up to uh, a win for Ebert. Um, <laughs> have you any tidbits uh, that you would like to bring up before we get into the good, the bad, and the questionable? Uh, I don't actually. So we can dive right in. Let's get into it. The good, the bad, and the questionable, starting with the good.
Um, why don't you Why don't you uh, take the take the lead here? I'm very interested to hear what you liked about this. So I will say it was hard for me to really outright pick what I thought was good about this, and it wasn't necessarily because I think this is a bad movie. I was just struggling with my own internal debate so much about how I should perceive this that I had to just kind of watch the movie and ask a lot of questions, I suppose. But that doesn't mean that I didn't think there was good aspects. Um, I think Michael Douglas's performance of defense is fantastic. And as far as I know, I've read that he thinks it's one of the best things he's ever done. So this is that my right favorite, on. Michael. The, this and and an undercover mo- movie called The Game. I think he's really good in that. But um, in terms of undercover Michael Douglas, he absolutely smashes this role. And to think what this movie could have been if they got somebody with less nuance, this movie could have been instead of talking about what does this movie represent, we could have been talking about what a fucking nutball fascistic. <laughs> you know, glorification if, if someone did not do that role justice. So Schumacher should thank Michael Douglas for knocking this out of the park. Cause it could have gone any other fucking direction. Yeah. It's too bad. He didn't get Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Can you uh, imagine that? A, 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 a Schwarzenegger yeah. cast that, that conversation <laughs> with the Korean in the, there's like I could see him just like crushing a can of soda in his fucking hands until he lets him have it for fucking 50 cents or whatever the the hell yeah um yeah so the acting specifically that also I love Robert Duvall there's really not a role that Robert Duvall has been in that I didn't like he's another uh he's a He's one of these guys, I, I wouldn't just say mercurial, but it's not that. that He's just able to play certain roles where you can tell it's like, how shall I put it? He's going definitely out of, out of his comfort zone in a lot of ways, I would say. Now, I, I don't know necessarily that that was the case with this, but like, there's definitely roles where I feel like he, he plays complex characters with nuance. This character isn't that complex but he does a good job of playing it so i really like him in this movie as well i will say that yeah i think he across the board actually but those two specifically it's a real good yin and yang and i think they it's weird they they both have to uh kind of dial it down the middle in order to get what they need out of those characters but i think they both do it to uh just expertly yeah um I <laughs> there's sometimes when defense he unleashes his rage on uh, a couple individuals in this where I do feel it's justified and I am on his side. So notably, of course, there's the uh, army surplus guy that eventually meets his demise. Uh, that army surplus guy. So that's another thing I will say as far as acting goes. That whole that whole sequence where things start happening at the army surplus store um, and to its end is kind of uncomfortable to watch. And for me, it's one of those things where 
it's uncomfortable because I've mentioned this in other episodes come, come where I, I come from and I come from, you know, this, I have this upbringing being around very masculine, but also kind of like <laughs> bigoted male, male figures. Sure. So when, uh, when I, you know, when I watch that scene, it's almost like it's kind of triggering because I'm like, oh, well, you know, I've known people like this that are, you know, just completely fucking unhinged, uh, bigoted assholes. And it's just like when you hear the way he talks, um, you know, you wince the whole time. It's just like you're getting like stabbed with words by this guy. And so I think that that character who I'll talk about, like maybe later into the podcast, uh, when we get to some of the other categories, I think he does a good role. And I feel like playing a role like that, you know, you really, if you're a conscientious person, it's like, you really got to, you know, step out of yourself to play that effectively, to be that big of a fucking asshole. Um, so, you and know, on like we're talking about like 10 minutes of screen time. Yeah, it it, it seems like it lasts forever. <laughs> and uh, it does. Yeah, it's, it's it's not that long. And um, and him getting getting uh, what he deserves at the end of that. Like, like I said, it's one of the few times in the movie where you're kind of you are on uh, um, defense's side. And that's what makes me think like Schumacher specifically put that in there. He he had to have – he did that on purpose because, I mean, they even have an exchange where um, where Nick the Nazi's like, we're the same. Uh, we're the same. Don't you see? Like we're the same, you and me. And, and defense is just like, we're not the same. I'm American and you're like a fucking sick asshole. Like he, right. he specifically puts that in there to be like, no, defense isn't like – He's like an all opportunist in terms of his hatred. Like he's just, he has reached the end of his rope with society and, and humanity in general. And, but he's not like, he's not specifically a, you know, a fucking Nazi or a homophobe or any of those things. I mean, he might be, I could, I could see defense being a homophobe, but he doesn't outwardly. That's not his mission. His mission is to get, to this birthday party and he just has a series of fucked up things happen along the way. Yeah. Well, the way I put it when we were watching it is again, if we're watching this through the lens of current events and you know, the climate in this country is I feel like defense and Nick, the Nazi are actually on two kind of opposite ends of what would be a Trump supporter perspective, uh, uh, spectrum. In a mm. lot of ways. You know what I mean? So, I agree with that. I I, uh, I don't think like he threw it in there to be like, oh, you see, defense isn't like a fascist or whatever. Like, I don't think it's like that. I, I, I agree with you. I think these two assholes are like you and me, we're the same. And they real and defense doesn't realize that he's actually more similar to Nick the Nazi than he thinks. But at the right. same rate is not oh, outwardly a, a specifically a Nazi or a fucking like out and out fascist. Well, and that to me also is kind of, that's a good portrait of what I feel is, is the diseased uh, political mentality of a lot of people in this country Yeah, is, you know, you have Trump supporters that are like, I'm not racist. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I have, you know, I have black friends or, you know, I'm not, I, I, I have no problem with gay people, but you know, 
they shouldn't be allowed to get married, you know? So there's that thing where it's, it's like, they, they want to seem like they're, you know, accepting of other people, but they, they want other people to, to, you know, they're fine with other people being, you know, around or in the world essentially, but they don't want them around them and they don't want them to have the same rights. They don't want to see them out and out get exterminated essentially. Yes. (laughs) You know what I mean? So that's, that's how I viewed that whole scene is yeah, they're not the same people, but they're not that far apart. And the one views, the other one as being completely antithetical. And that's where they, (laughs) they're not able to have their own, what I feel is a proper introspection and critical analysis of how they view the world. And, and you become um, psychologically ossified, like you were saying. This is a man that he refuses to adapt to the world. He he's stuck in his this mindset of you know this is the way it is. You know this is the way we do things in this country, and this is how you succeed in this country. And I don't understand why you know I don't matter anymore. So um, so that's what I have to say about that. Just a little bit about that. Sure. And, no, I thought that was great. Uh, um, aside from that, the other time where I think, you know, you know, where I'm on the side of defense and I'm kind of rooting for him is when he gives it to the, the rich golf asshole. Oh my God. So. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> that is so, that is so good. He, that's what makes this movie conflicting. Cause you don't want to laugh. At, and this is where I see the anti-hero thing come in because he's genuinely funny and, and affable. And like, you like, you like. you genuinely are on his side through part of the movie and it makes you feel disgusted with yourself. And I don't think that was Schumacher's intention, but you don't want to side with him. So if you're going to make him like the villain, then you got to go full tilt. But by giving him these little, these little quips here and there, yeah, you do make him a little bit more likable, but I love, and you're going to die with that stupid fucking hat too. So, (laughs) (laughs) but, but again, and that also, that's another discussion about where the logic of a lot of um, white people in this country, um, what would be considered middle class white white people, I would, I'm <clears throat> I'm going to say, uh, is again they have this they they are they're against this certain these certain aspects of society. But at the same time, they enable them by being the way they are, you know. So, you know, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. And they don't know that they're part of the problem because they're they're not outwardly, uh, you know, actually actively against these other things. They just want to they want to hide behind a bullshit facade of being like, I got no problem with the gays. I just don't want to see any of it. Right. Or like with the rich asshole guy, the rich dickhead, they don't necessarily see themselves as being that person. That's another thing that got Trump elected is there was this, you know, there was this part of society that really was convinced that Trump was going to, you know, quote unquote, drain the swamp and and give opportunities back to people in this country, like bring jobs back and, you know, help bolster industry and things like that and and stick it to the rich people, which all that's crazy to me, obviously. But like people voted for him thinking that that was going to happen. And he didn't because, of course, he's not going to. He is a rich asshole and he's also not, a you know, a good politician. So that little that 
that interlude that happened there, that was another, you know, one of those indications that, you know, like people don't see themselves on the sides of the rich and the wealthy. They're the middle working class or whatever. They're against them, but they also live to aid and abet them through, you know, their political standpoints or who they elect or, you know, being kind of checked out on like participatory politics or activism, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, so those were two things. That's true. Yeah. You know, so those were a couple other goods of mine. So Um, to piggyback off of uh, some of those and to bring up new ones, um, the entire Whammy Burger sequence is so (laughs) iconic. It's like one of the most iconic it's it's the one of the most e- iconic Schumacher uh, scenes, but it, it is also just kind of embedded in one of my favorite scenes alongside like in Near Dark when uh, they go into the bar. It's like one of those yeah. where I'm like, when I see him going to the Whammy Burger, I'm like, this is so fucking good. I love this. I, I love that entire sequence is good. Um, that woman who throws up. In, <laughs> he's like, ma'am, <laughs> ma'am, how are you enjoying your burger? She's like, Bleh. like, the, the, <laughs> yeah, like the the sound they put in post production, they literally had someone that was just like, Bleh. like, they, <laughs> it, it, it is so. She wins like the unintentional comedy award of the century. That is this this is so fucking funny. But not to mention that, I mean, falling down and Big Daddy, which the the two most. Fucking like I can't think of two movies that are more opposite. Uh, really spurred the way to all day breakfast. Like there's that whole sequence, obviously in Big Daddy, where Adam Sandler goes in McDonald's and can't get fucking breakfast either because yeah. it's, it's after eleven or whatever. Um, right. I, this is a weird thing, but like falling down in Big Daddy really did like bring up this issue that everyone was essentially having that didn't make any, a lot of sense to a lot of people. And now look, we have fucking all day breakfast across the board. <laughs> thank you. Defense. Yeah. Thank you. Defense. You really spearheaded that, that what though. I want to go ahead. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, but no. What I want, what I wanted to say also about that whole sequence in the uh, fast food restaurant is again, it was kind of like, it reminded me of aspects of growing up because my dad all, he never pulled a gun out on anybody, but my dad was one of those type of people that if somebody got his order wrong at a fast food restaurant, he would like flip out. He would lose his shit. And I saw him, you know, actually go inside with whatever, like if they fucked up his burger and he would just throw it at oh, the employees. God. Oh, man. You know, and just, you know, berate the employees. And that's been maybe, forever. Maybe that scene wasn't as fun for you. <laughs> No, it's it's not that. It's 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 not triggering in a way that I'm like, ah. <laughs> I, uh, I enjoy it. I think, yeah, it's a very iconic scene, and there's a there's a lot going on with it, and the fact that yeah, it did actually have this influence on cultural shifting. That's what I mean. Like this movie had a lot of impact on cultural shifts in America, which you know that's. I mean, that's what's interesting about movies like this, these big budget movies and things like that, that just completely change the terrain of American culture in a lot of ways and the way people think. It is. It's definitely, it's something that a lot of cultural, 
cultural aspects have been hinged upon and have have shifted because of it. it's weird that this has this has ripple effects um in the way that it does but it has massive ripple effects i agree yeah and i want to talk you you mentioned it in, in up top that yeah it's analyzing defense as a part of a dying american breed is really you know the crux of this movie of course and you know he's so he's supposed to be in his late 30s uh, in the movie and it's 1992. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that would have made him, you know, he would have been born in the fifties. And so, um, he grew up during this time where everybody was inculcated with this idea that if you just work hard, you can have that life. You can have the, the nice middle-class life. You know, it's, it's like people from that era, they didn't necessarily even have to finish college to have a house and a comfortable life. And, you know, by the end of the eighties, that was, that was, that was when it was starting to change. You know, the, the downward slope started to occur in the seventies and it was starting to really kind of, you know, uh, kick into high gear by the early nineties. But the thing is, you know, with Clinton and everything, we, we had this kind of what would I would consider, um, uh, um, uh, this, um, brief boom time sure. where people, you know, where people through like the dot, dot com and the tech bubble and, and things like that, where people were still convinced on the surface that they had that opportunity. But in a lot of ways, that old school mentality, you know, was, was, going away and you know it's that was the beginning of the end for for what we're seeing now and that's again why we have trump and we have so much disaffection in you know uh amongst the white working and middle class is because they just felt like they were left behind so and and yeah to put that against this backdrop of a culturally diverse la and what is also uh in a lot of ways you know, uh, in, there's indications of, you know, systemic poverty and, and systemic, you know, you know, a lack of wealth being indicated, uh, that causes like all these other issues that, you know, white people don't understand and things like that. So, yeah, you know, um, yeah. It, that, and that's why I mentioned the fish out of water thing, because, even to the even down to the way he dresses, he's got like a fifties buzz cut. He's got those thick black glasses, like a button down shirt, and the, the trousers. He he develops missiles to defend the country from the communists. Quote unquote, that's like <laughs> an actual quote from the movie. Like right. he has yeah. a briefcase. He doesn't have a fucking. He doesn't even have a computer. He uses a pencil and a ruler. Like he is out of time and. It is almost as if he was dropped into this movie from the 50s because he is in a more politically correct uh, 90s era and a incredibly diverse L.A. And he just doesn't know how to adapt. He's he comes off as baffled, clueless, frightened. He, I mean, it, it really is like almost like an Encino man thing. Like he was fucking like almost thought out and was like put into the middle of gridlock traffic and was like, all right, try to survive. <laughs> yeah. And he yeah. can't, and he can't. Un- un- unfrozen caveman lawyer for sure. But yes, absolutely. But, but I will, I will discuss when we get into the bad and the questionable that although 
it does do a good job of portraying defense in that manner as being a dying breed. I don't think that the movie sufficiently gives enough nuance and critique to the actual systemic reasons why things are happening around him. It's more like kind of like, I don't want to get too much into it, but it's like, it's almost like it's, it's, it's like, it's like there's the, the director and the writer is not getting into the nitty gritty of why these things are happening. They're just happening and it's complex and they don't know how to explain it. And it's, it it's, it's uh I don't know. We'll get more into that. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. I, absolutely. I feel I feel like it hinges too much on worrying about why, you know, his generation and the way he's being portrayed is an issue as opposed to all the things around it being problematic as well. Uh but anyways, but um I will say for my part, those were the main goods. So if you have anything else you want to discuss, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, we'll um we're gonna tackle that next here. Uh the only other good that I had, um was the and I already mentioned this, but this movie has a bunch of tropes like within the movie that are all wrapped up into one, and I love all of them. I love the yeah. cat and mouse manhunt movie. I love yeah. the movie set over the course of one day. I right. love the guy having a bad day movie. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. I, I love that. Um, <laughs> uh, like Dog Day Afternoon or whatever. Uh, yeah. It, uh, I love a like hard nosed gritty LAPD movie, um, yeah. And I love a fish out of water story. So, and this yeah. movie is yeah. basically all those things, absolutely. Um, and the only other thing I want to give props to is Prendergast is constantly confronted with toxic masculinity in the workplace, and he handles it with such professionalism. I absolutely fucking love it. Like he never, he never uh, really gives an inch or gives anybody anything. Like. He does come off as being like walked all over, but he also right. gives off a uh, an air of like I'm better than to to be baited into these into really bullshit toxic culture. Like when the captain's like, I ne- I don't like you. I never liked you. You've never you've never cussed the entire time you've been on the uh, force. You're never, not a shit, not a fuck. Like I don't trust a man who doesn't cuss. Like <laughs> right. And he's just like, it seems like your fucking problem, not mine. <laughs> yeah, well, and it, I agree until the very end where he basically he snaps. And so that's where like there's that there is that kind of convergence of the two characters where, you know, even though Pendergast is collected and and and, and has more of a uh, cool head about himself and is is more of a, uh, I guess, a, a gentle person in those regards, he has his own breaking point as well. And I think that's what that's trying to show parallel is he's able to control it, but it's there. You know, he obviously, he knocks out, you know, the, the one guy for talking shit about his wife. Yeah. And then at the very, at the very end, when he's being interviewed uh, by the captain, he, he says, fuck you very much and walks away. Yeah. So that's the thing. Yeah. Prendergrass is a better person, but still has the same internal turmoil. Like, and also his wife, you know, his wife is just freaking out on him. So it's like, that's the thing. It's like, yeah, it's like you were saying, it's like, it's showing two characters side by side. that are essentially ostensibly coming from the same backgrounds, but they handle their, their stress differently. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but but it's, it's, again, it's, it's kind of almost saying that if you give it enough time with somebody like Prendergrass, he could freak out too. Anybody's anybody has 
that ability to freak out. But it's just there's a different finish line. The goalpost has moved further or closer from different True. people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Absolutely. I will say I'll say that about his character. I love that the that dichotomy between the two of them as well. It, it is right. uh, it's like two people walking towards each other slowly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. But that um, is a good segue into the bad, and I will just tell you my bad is different from your bad. I just already know that, so <laughs> I'll do my bad, and then we could talk about your bad. But because yeah. mine's more lighthearted bad, um, yeah. Prendergast's wife fucking sucks. She's like a bad. She's just a bad partner. Like, <laughs> yeah, she really does. She really is awful. Um, she's super irritating. <laughs> it's crazy when I'm like. And I'm saying this, I'm going to put the, uh, put the fucking alarm here that I'm joking, but it's crazy where I, where I find her to be more grating than the neo-fascist Nick the Nazi. Like, <laughs> like, I'm like, dear Lord, let him fucking, and it's not like a, not like a, like, well, she's just a hysterical woman. And it's like, fucking calm, just chill out. It's like, dude, like. He's on his last day of the force. He's gonna. He's coming home. I get. Yeah. I get it. You lost the kid. You don't want him to die. Like I get it. But like she needs to be more supportive because he's got a lot on his plate, and he's also dealing with the with the loss of their child. So get the, the get the fuck out of here. She was. <laughs> she's a bad, Absolutely. a bad wife and a bad partner. Um, <laughs> and this movie also has bad cops, much like a lot of movies that we watch that <laughs> have any police in it, but. Um, making Foster's ex-wife, um, Beth feel bad about reporting a domestic violence charge and then, and then like put into question why there's even a restraining order. Like that fucking cop does so much to be such a shitball idiot without saying anything. It's all in his stupid fucking face when she was Mm -hmm. like, well, I knew he wasn't, he didn't do anything, but I knew that he was about to, or that it could have led to that. And he was like, "Mm, it was, it was, it could have led to that. Like he... What a fucking asshole. Like, right, right. Like abuse comes in so many different like formats. Like you don't have to be physically punched to be in an abusive relationship. Like, it, and that, that asshole cop that comes over, uh, cause she's scared is, is the definition of why we do not need to bring cops into a an already hectic situation. <laughs> Absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. Those are my bad because I already knew, I, I did not put the obvious, in there because I knew we would discuss it. So you, you lead, uh, lead off your, your stuff. Well, yeah, of course there's, uh, there is the portrayal of non-whites in this movie and putting them in certain, um, uh, kind of, um, exaggerated stereotypes, the you Korean know, specifically, yeah. the Korean, and, and yeah, the Cholo the, gang guys, yeah, the, the Cholo Latino <laughs> gang, the the gang members, you know. And again, I don't think that that was any. I don't think that that was coming from a malicious intent on the part of Schumacher and the May writer I offer at all. A counterpoint. Yeah, absolutely. I Go ahead. I feel like everybody's ramped up in terms of a stereotype because I think Nick the Nazi is like ramped up to fucking twenty. Like he is the absolute stereotype of a like Nazi memorabilia collecting uh, military surplus store owner. Hundred percent. No, that doesn't that doesn't uh, in any way make it okay. But I just think 
for whatever reason, every character that he runs into is, for whatever reason, purposely a insanely dialed up stereotype. Sure, sure, and 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 I don't disagree with that at all. I and, and this is where again, it's it's portraying this through a more modern lens, a, a more uh, what would con- be considered socially progressive lens. Absolutely, is, you know. It, that guy becoming a Nazi, it, you know, and being a bad person, those are completely different reasons than why, you know, Latinos join gangs, yeah. you know, <laughs> and and why that becomes their livelihood and, you know, why the, the, there's, you know, that is that is directly intertwined with what is considered racist, systemic you know, poverty issues in this country, as opposed to, you know, the opposite end of a guy that, that doesn't recognize that there's systemic reasons why, you know, people of color, you know, have to live a certain way and they just blame it on their culture essentially. So they, they completely missed the point. So, you know, I think that was, again, they're trying to, they're trying to talk about these issues, but they don't quite, they kind of miss the point you know, in certain ways. And, and that's where like, I was kind of getting hung up a little bit and was trying to, you know, get around that. And, and cause I view plenty of other movies, you know, that have, you know, sh- bad commentary on life or, you know, or, or have bad takes and I enjoy them just fine. And I think again, that's because this movie to me isn't a favorite of mine. So, or whatever, I don't know, but like, you know, it's not something that I try to get hung up on too much. I try to have, you know, I try to view this all critically and through the perspective of where it was coming from at the time. But that was the thing that I definitely noticed. Um, so take that for what you will. Um, no, and, I, I agree. Um, <laughs> actually, my partner pointed this out and it, it, I feel it is apt. Um, defense is essentially a Karen. He's he is a male Karen. He's Ken. <laughs> Yeah, he's a Ken, exactly, where, you know, he's not getting his way, so he's going to freak out and throw everybody under the bus about it and throw a tantrum, essentially. He absolutely <laughs> is. He is He is that dumb motherfucker that uh, in St. Louis that came out with his wife and the gun. Like, he's that He's that guy, only somehow found a, some, a, a perfect counterpoint to his insanity. Yeah, yeah, or just the woman that called the cops on the bird watcher. Yeah, you know, it's this is this any, is a white any series of real dumb fucking privileged bullshit. Right. What what would be considered liberal racism? Because these are like liberal people that you know don't consider themselves to be racist, but do actually engage in racist, uh, racist sort of activity and and racist, you know. Uh, ways of dealing with people all the time. You know, they're, they're the, <laughs> they're the, they're the white couple in get out, you know? Yeah. That yeah. Yeah. Their, their, their racism is entrenched, um, and veiled. Um, you know, they, they veil it to look more respectable amongst their peer group and, and to seem more intelligent and more advanced, but they're just as racist as, you know, anyone that's outward out and out racist. Right. So it's, it's to me, it's it's a much more insidious racism. Um, and that's a discussion that I've been having a lot lately with, with what's been going on is, you know, the liberal sort of racism. And when I say liberal for the because I have to make sure that people understand this, because a lot of people I don't think understand this, that are leftist or left leaning is liberal is not the same as being leftist. Liberal is a certain kind of centrist sort of 
uh, kind of specific. Uh, yeah, you're just play. left of center. Right. It's it's you know it's it's, it's a very specific place on you know uh, on the political spectrum, um, and it's 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 what I consider to be damaging. Um, damaging and deflecting uh progressive mindsets so anyways um yeah and i feel like defense is kind of like again he's near that that kind of right to center sort of viewpoint where yeah he probably doesn't view himself as being racist he doesn't view himself as as being somebody that prejudices against people but he clearly does in his actions because it's so embedded and ingrained in his consciousness and his day-to-day life that he's not able to step outside of it as opposed to somebody like nick the nazi again who is an outright racist and lauds racism and, and lauds taking away the rights of other people because they're different and because of this color of their skin so true and I will um, say that they throw they another thing that he that was thrown in there that I think is smart. That's why it's it's there's lots of nuance that's thrown in there. But when uh, defense is arguing with the convenience store guy and he's like, you know how much money your uh, your country that your country owes our country, and he's like, no, how much? And he's like, I don't know, but it's got to be a lot. Like, <laughs> yeah, he like that's a that's a pur- purposeful script. Uh, that's purposely put in the script to be like, yeah, again, yeah. with the Rorschach test. Like, mm-hmm. if you think, if you identify more so like, you know what? Yeah, they do owe this country a lot of money. But if you see it more so like, this guy's a fucking idiot. Like, he doesn't, he just arguing with people. But when they, when they call him on his bullshit, he's like, I don't know, but it's got to be a lot. Like, you know, I, it passes that <laughs> test. Like, I feel like they throw that in there for you to be like, Oh, I get it. He's just a fucking idiot. Like, I, yeah. Right. Yeah. People in this country are propagandized so badly and so ill-educated that they just they take whatever they see on the news. They're, you know, like Fox News or or whatever, like, you know, bullshit water cooler, cooler talk. And, and they just ingest it without any sort of critical, you know, inspection of what they're saying. They just take it on face value. Like, well, obviously, countries that, you know, used to be communist or are currently communist or are third world or are dependent on us or they're trying to fuck us over and things like that. So, yeah, absolutely. I, I understood that that was, you know, a purposeful uh, thing that they put in the script. Uh, I will say one other thing, too, because that's pretty much it for me um, as far as bads. But uh, as far as um, a, a lighthearted bad on my end, those gang members are terrible shots. Oh, my God. And also, <laughs> you just let like a white guy in a briefcase like literally you had him outnumbered and you let him just like run you off your shit like with a I know he had a bat, but like, come on, motherfuckers, like you had a butterfly knife. You got nothing else on you like at that moment or you can just have beaten the shit out of him. You're, right. Are you are you telling me that defense could have taken like literally took those two guys for everything they were worth and then and they literally gave up on that fight real quick? Yeah, that was actually in my questions too. Is when they have that first encounter, it's it's like really you don't have any guns on you. All gang members have guns on them at all time. I know this for a fact. It's funny to me that at that moment they didn't, and then they had to regroup and we'll then be back. Hunt. <laughs> and then hunt him down. Yeah, so. Yeah, because the idea of having to get into a car and then track down this dude and now you've got like five motherfuckers, like, it's like, okay, like, that's like, uh, <laughs> you know, using a grenade to, to fucking open up a can of beer or something. Like, it's like, right. come on, man. Just like, yeah. <laughs> just, just stab the guy and get this shit over with. Well, it's just, yeah, and then they spray that entire uh, sidewalk. 
Not to with mention bullets. that. Yeah, that, another bullets. bad. They're just bad at being in a – that's the worst – that's the lowest tier of whatever subsect Latino gang. They're, they're, like, <laughs> they're like not even – they're not even the peons. They're not even right. recruits. Like that, they're, they're awful. They're like if – if if we made this uh, analogy to the warriors, they're the orphans. The orphans <laughs> are, are, are the the worst, shittiest, like low tier gang. In, in, it's almost in the not a gang. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're completely off the radar. <clears throat> that's so yeah, good, that's a good bet. So that's what I had. So questionable questions. Uh, I'll just ask some of mine, and then we'll get to yours. Um, it's a swelteringly hot day in L.A., and defense decides after leaving the uh, military surplus store that he's going to change into a full-body black jumpsuit. <laughs> right? <laughs> when that whole third act, when he's running around in that fucking thing, I'm like, dude, how is he not passed out in a fucking gutter right now? Like, that has got to be so hot. Like, so hot. And traversing, like an ultra urban, like uh, concrete jungle, like, Oh my God, I can't even fathom. Yeah. And I would almost chalk that up too, because the, the change in wardrobe, excuse me, uh, is supposed to be reflective of what's going on internally in him. So, you know, that's that all black, uh, BDU, uh, jumpsuit. He almost looks like what would be, a member of the Khmer Rouge or something. Yeah, he does. Uh, he, it's a transformation into this militiaman like mentality uh, because he's flipped from uh, genuinely thinking he's going to his daughter's birthday party with good intentions to flipping it. That wardrobe change is a symbolization of like, I'm going there with, with ill intentions now. Yeah. So that's what I would say is he has no regard for any sort of discomfort because he's in full combat mode at that point. But you know, just just uh, get, <laughs> yeah. get a pair of scissors and make that militia those militia pants into some jorts, and let's let's get <laughs> like I get it. Let's get going here. Yeah, that's that's what I would do. I used to wear BDUs like that, and when it got hot, man, the bottoms got, got snipped off. Got to. Um, Printergast says his daughter was two when she died, but that picture of her on his desk is like, that's like a fucking seven-year-old. Like my daughter's two. I know what a two-year-old looks like. That is, <laughs> that is like a full-ass grown-ass child. <laughs> that that, yeah, that actually did. is super weird. I was like, two? I saw that picture. That is not a two-year-old. Yeah, that's funny. I actually didn't make that connection, but yes, you're right. <laughs> um, and also, Printergast... I think this is uh, – and I've seen this movie a million times and it's still, it still strikes me differently every time. Is Prendergast not retiring after – like that, that's my – I guess that's my question. Is Prendergast retired or like he's telling his boss to fuck off obviously. Uh, is that his – is that his like goodbye? But he also mentions to his wife he, uh, is, is that she's going to be upset because when she finds out he's still a cop. Does that mean – like, does my wife is going to be upset when she finds out I'm still a cop mean she's going to be upset when she finds out that I'm still a cop because I had this one last actual boots on the ground uh, detective mission where I where where I was supposed to sit at my desk for my last day? Or does that mean she's going to be mad that when she finds out I'm still a cop because I still got it in me and I'm not retiring? Yeah, that is curious. I had that same thought. I. 
I'm led to believe that because he's having his own crisis moments there towards the very end, um, and he's reflecting upon his own life, that he makes the decision then and there that he's going to stay on the force and his wife's just going to have to deal with it because he's clearly reluctant throughout the whole. Yeah, you're not, he's not going to Lake Havasu. Like he, retirement's not happening in Lake Havasu. If that's the yeah, case. Yeah. He's reluctant the whole time to want to do this. He's doing it for his wife because he feels essentially he has this guilty conscience about putting his wife through labor and having to have a child that ultimately died, you know, for what he considered just for his sake. So, but, but you know. then the only thing that puts that in question is like, okay, you're staying on the force, but you just said, fuck you very much <laughs> and assaulted another police officer in the same day. Like I, you do that kind of shit when you know, you can't be fired. So like, I don't know. It's yeah. like, does he yeah. even have a job still? It's true. <laughs> I don't know, but that Wait, is interesting. That's one of uh, a, maybe a little bit more unanswerable. What uh, questions did you have? So right off the top, what I wanted to say is when defense leaves his car, he abandons his car there in the traffic jam and the guy behind him is, is having a shit fit about it. Would that actually happen? Would that actually happen? Would that happen in LA? Because I know that if I was behind him and I saw a guy just up and leave, I would be like, what the fuck is he doing? But I wouldn't yell at him. I wonder what the fuck is. I know I could totally see that happening. Because I think the the mindset still is, though, even though they're in gridlock traffic and they're going to be there for quite a while, their mindset is to not give an inch in those bigger cities. That's why you're Mm -hmm. that's why you're told, like, specifically, like Hoosiers driving up to Chicago or whatever. But just this is big city driving 101. Never turn your turn signal on when you're merging, because that is seen as an affront to somebody and they're not going to let you in. You got to, you got to merge and free flow through that traffic without, without your turn signal. Cause they see that as like a touristy or a honky fucking thing to do. And people are less inclined to let you in when you do that. But really, I, I, I've yeah. actually never heard that before. You, well, you know, it's one of those like, you know, unspoken bullshit rules that may not have any real <laughs> evidence behind it. But I've been told that several times that, especially in Chicago traffic, like do not, do not turn your turn signal on. If they, if they know you're trying to get in, they're not going to let you in. And I, and I have experienced times in Chicago where just people aren't letting me in and I'm sitting there with my fucking blinker on like an idiot. So I don't know, maybe it does, but I think there's just a different mindset in LA traffic, even though they're, they're in gridlock that, that dude is still like, you know, expecting to move. And now that the car in front of him is abandoned, he knows he's in a worse off place. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't know, I guess, because I have, I do have road rage. I mean, I'll admit it. It's gotten better. It oh, got would, real would bad. I have done that or you have done that? No. Would this L.A. asshole have done it? Yes. OK, I just feel like that would be something that <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they would care. It would be on their mind, but they wouldn't outright say, hey, what the fuck? Where are you going? But anyways, you know, I, I get I, I see get what, what you're saying. saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, also, I just didn't think that it would be also, you know, realistic that a, a motorbike cop would come at the, the aid of this person. It seems like a pretty trivial request to to call for this motorbike cop. But then again, he could have just been driving along and saw it. I just I, I didn't I felt like that was that whole part right up the top was 
not necessarily what would happen in real life. I feel like they would just kind of sit there and eventually figure out, oh, this guy's not coming back. And um, I probably don't know. you're right. So, anyways, so <laughs> uh, other than that, um, and this goes back to you talking about how everybody in this movie is kind of dialed up, but like, God, every why everybody is an asshole in this movie, pretty much in a lot of ways. It's and, an angry yeah. movie. That's why I, I, that's why I had to quantify by being like. I, I, I don't have fun. And it's not that I I have a lot of fun watching this movie, but I, at the same rate, I have a lot of fun watching this movie. It is like un, it's like when we talk about uncut gems, it's like, okay, everyone's just yelling yeah. for two and a half hours. Absolutely. This is uh, giving me heart palpitations, but I'm also like <laughs> enjoying this. Um, at the same rate, as Falling Down is just like an angry movie. And your only reprieve is when you finally get a Prendergast scene because that dude is just so chill. Yeah. Well, what I wanted to say was when he gets to the the convenience store, the the corner store or whatever, I've never personally encountered a a time where a clerk would not just outright give me change if I asked them for it, that they would, you know, insist that you buy something to get the change back. Yeah. So it's, it's again, you know, I felt like that was something that was fictionalized. Maybe somebody who you know involved with the movie might have had a circumstance with like a shitty clerk, but more often than not, I feel like you just go in and be like, "Hey, do you have quarters?" And they'll be like, "Yeah, sure." And then you know, okay. <laughs> and then you're. I think on, on I your think way. it speaks more too because I have had that happen before. I think these mom and pop stores get taken advantage of, and they and they need they need to turn a sale in order to warrant somebody just coming in. It's almost like loitering to just come in and be like, "Hey, can I?" Can I right. can break a five and then I'm going to leave and not and not uh, support your business financially. So, like, I feel like because well, I, 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 I worked at an independent health food store forever. And, yeah, when people come in for bullshit like that, you I never personally told someone we couldn't do it. But I could see why this guy may have had some run ins with with honkies that then left. That was really it. I already talked about the gang members not having guns. The only other one that I had was this is a real, real dumb minutia. That hole in defense's shoe seems abnormally large. <laughs> I know. I know. Did you just uh, traverse Everest? Like, I, I didn't understand. Yeah, that's a good question. And as we were talking, uh, my other question, just like as we were kind of just hammering things out, uh, is – he would have gotten caught way sooner. Like you can't just like yes. completely obliterate a fucking convenience store. Uh, go, go to the scene of a gang shooting, a mass shooting and then grab their guns and then shoot one of them and then just walk off. You, you, and the looking the way he looks like he looks in like so insanely out of again, fish out of water scenario. And he's just, sauntering away he's not he's never at even a brisk walk <laughs> yeah i agree yeah that was a thought that i, I hadn't run through my head as he would he would have never gotten this far no but maybe, <laughs> maybe that maybe that undercover speaks to the white privilege shit like oh yeah a, obviously a black if this was a black if this was like a denzel movie denzel would have gotten about five minutes into the movie and it would rolled credits and we've been like what a right. what a weird short movie uh, yeah. But maybe it speaks more to, yeah, like a white guy could get away with it because the when they're giving the descriptions at the police office, it, they are shocked at the description. But then when it yes. starts coming in over and over again, then they have a pattern. So, I mean, Ab- yeah, maybe Ab- that speaks absolutely. to that too. 
Right. And that was uh, that was a thought I had as well as, yes, he would get caught earlier or maybe he wouldn't because he's a white guy and he would just get away with all this mayhem because no one would suspect a guy like this. A, yeah. A, a Dilbert looking, you know, a literal Dilbert. Yeah. Uh, you know, getting away with all this mayhem. Um, but, yeah, I guess the reason why the, the hole in the shoe thing intrigued me, because defense is for all intents and purposes a pretty fastidious individual that i can't imagine that he would let this gigantic gaping hole exist in his shoe for that long he i figured he would have he would have nipped that in the bud pretty quick and got his 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 shoe soles repaired <laughs> i think it, i think it speaks to his um at complete aloofness and and disconnection with reality because you also learn that he's been going to work for six uh, he's been going to work but was fired like six months ago or whatever uh but he still goes through the routine of going to work and packing lunch like even mom's like what does he do with his lunch where does he eat it <laughs> that, that, right. that that's her concern but like uh i think it just com- it, it, it it's like he just is completely unaware of his uh, uh, surroundings and is physically literally and figuratively unraveling mentally and everything and, and, and through his shoes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, okay. Well, I mean, that's, those were Great. the questions I had, the main ones. Good. Let's move on to, uh, quotes, our, our favorite quotes. Rick, have you ever heard the expression the customer is always right? Yeah. Yeah, well, here I am, the customer. That's not our policy. You have to order something from the lunch menu. I don't want lunch. I want breakfast. Yeah, well, hey, I'm really sorry. Yeah, well, hey, I'm really sorry, too. Sit down. Sit down over there. Hey, 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 hey. Mister, where are you going? I'll throw no, some no, off no, the no, top and you let me you know if any of these uh, moved your needle. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, I did not put this in here because I think it's funny or, or I'm not trying to be insensitive. This is a hard movie to quote without being insensitive. Um, obviously, I'm not going to just quote a bunch of like Nick the Nazi saying the N-word a bunch, but um, when he says, imagine what those queers do when they're alone. And what about the muff divers? Think about it. That line gets me <laughs> rolling every time. He, first of all, he says, think about it at the end of every sentence, which is hilarious because it just yeah. speaks to like how much of a conspiracy theory nutball he probably is. But imagine what those queers do when they're alone. And what about the muff divers? Think about it. What, is, what does that even <laughs> fucking mean? What does that, what does that mean? It's so so weird. Um, Yeah, in the golf course scene. Now you're going to die wearing that stupid little hat. How does that feel? (laughs) That's such a a good line. That's great. Yeah, The line we already talked about, fuck you, Captain Yardley. Fuck you very much. Um, That's a great great farewell line. And a a great um, take this job and shove it line. Uh, Right. This is the quote. um, This is part of the quote that I read in the monologue that was also part of it, but I love the def- the, the P uh, taking the curtains behind um, a peek into Bill Foster's madness, Bill Foster, IE uh, or AKA 
defense. I lost my job. Well, actually, I didn't lose it. It lost me. I'm overeducated and underskilled. Well, maybe it's the other way around. I forget. But I'm obsolete. I'm not economically viable. I mm. love that line. The That's such good script writing to have him say, I'm overeducated, underskilled. Maybe it's the other way around. Like, he doesn't even know. Like, he's lost. He has lost all sense of reality. Like it, it, it's, it's eluded him and it speaks a lot to this complete fish out of water mentality. Like he does not even know how to cope with where he's mm-hmm. at and how the world, how much the world has changed. Yeah. I love that. That line does, does the most justice to that. Um, obviously we already talked about this and you ma'am, how's the food? <laughs> <laughs> and then he says, I think we have a critic. I don't think she likes the special sauce, Rick. That's a joke. That's, that's, that's the whammy burger scene. Uh, yeah. do, you, do you have any quotes that you liked? No, those are pretty much all the ones that uh, I, I thought of as well. I will say I really like just the phrase of him saying, I'm going home uh, yeah. there at the very beginning because – this is something I, I kind of meant to touch on a little bit, and I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but I think that phrase touches upon what ultimately is going on in the deep, deep back of defense's consciousness is that this is his last day on Earth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he's not going to survive this day. Um, it's it's going to end up bad. Um, yeah, because home and, is is literal and figurative in that in that aspect. It's definitely not. I mean, it's definitely he's going home to visit his daughter for his birthday. But that line is so much more than that, right? And so, you know, if you wanted to give this, you know, any more, you know, a, a little bit more m- m- metaphysical insight or spiritual insight or whatever, I don't think this movie is intentionally trying to be spiritual in any way. But <laughs> God, that no. that no. <laughs> that that going home just means like he's 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 done. He, he's he's dying. He, yeah. he's, he's he's being put. He's literally he as as a a figure a historical uh, part of society as as a, as a demographic of society. He has been put out to pasture, and as an individual, he's being put out to pasture. He's done. Yes. He's done. done. He's done. He's going home. That's a good he's, one too. And obviously like basically the tagline of the movie. Yeah. Um, moving on to our awards section and categories, I should say, did you spot yourself a Dick Miller, our Dick Miller award for, um, bit, uh, actor extraordinaire, Dick Miller. Um, who do you have in this award? So this movie had a lot of potential Dick Millers Dude, for me. <laughs> I was like, there's no way we're landing on the same person because I, I came up with like six and I had to narrow it down. <laughs> yeah. I had three that I just kind of wanted to mention, uh, but I wasn't sure which one specifically would be the singular one, but you have got to give one of those, one of the three, the award. Yeah. Well, I, I, I pointed out Frederick Forrest, Raymond J. Barry and Vondi Curtis Hall. Frederick Forrest is the guy who played the Nazi Nick. Raymond J. Berry plays the captain. Vondi Curtis Hall plays the I'm not, uh, not economically viable guy. Viable guy. Um, that that's who my <laughs> Dick Miller is. Is Vondi Curtis Hall? Okay, well that's good. Th- th- then I'll narrow it down to, to Frederick Forrest. Okay, great. The reason, the reason why I mentioned him, and as I was reading more about like the the trivia and things about this, and who um, did, who did he play? 
he plays the Nazi name. Oh, Nick the Nazi. Okay. Nick the Nazi or whatever. Um, but as I was reading in the trivia, the, all the weird little um, nods and connections that Schumacher made to Apocalypse Now in this movie, mm-hmm. um, it, it made it, this made sense for me because that guy is the actor that plays Chef in Apocalypse Now. Yeah, you remember, yep. remember you remember Chef the the saucier? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, I picked him. That, that was, was a my great pick. one. There's so many good ones. The other guy I had on this list was the Whammy Burger manager with the gas yes. tooth because he's right. so iconically in my head the one of the doofus people that in Silence of the Lambs. That Silence goes, of the Lambs, yeah, right? Yeah, one of the doofus of- cops that goes in there um, when he's in that grandiose like cage at the top or of that well, building or whatever. He's not a cop. He's a he's yeah, one what, of the uh, he's the. He's the He's an entomologist. He's he's an insect. Oh, I'm uh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm thinking of another Dick Miller that that is. He is he is the entomologist because um yeah, I remember that vividly now. Okay. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure, but no, yeah, you're right. You know, you're right. He, he's definitely okay. Yeah, he's definitely the guy from Silence of the Cuz I remember that smile when Clarice puts the the shit under her nose um to go through the cadaver shit and stuff and he he's in that like that part of the movie. Yeah. Uh, so anyways, but you picked Vondi Curtis Hall. Yes. The not economically viable guy. He's in this movie for what? Two minutes. <laughs> right. But, but it's, it, it's I, a good I, two I, minutes. Right. I, I, you know, we should have mentioned him in the good because I think he is a, is he's a good in the movie as well. And it's a realization being, for defense. Right. So he sees yeah. a lot of him because he, he says, don't end up like me. Or what does he say in the car? He says something like, he says, don't forget me or whatever. Yeah. It's, yeah. You'll remember me or don't forget me. But like, yeah, it's like he's almost he could almost be a figment of defense's imagination. That's like, true. too. That defense is seeing him in front of himself freaking out. Yeah. He's like he's like the he's the antimatter version of defense That's in true. a lot of ways. That's true. So, um, well, once so because he looks familiar. Uh, my favorite Jim Jarmusch movie is Mystery Train, and he's in one of the Mystery Train segments, and I think that's actually how I recognize him. But then when I looked into it further, he's in Coming to America, he's yeah. in Die Hard 2, uh, he's in Sugar Hill, he's in Clear and Present Danger, and he has a, an entire story arc in – I'm a – I don't know if I've mentioned this ever, but I love ER. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. He's at a huge story arc in ER. He has a bunch of, he's in a bunch of episodes. Um, that may, so yeah, I gave it to him because I love most of those things. So I know him most and I know you won't give a shit about this because you said you don't like any, <laughs> you don't like Marvel, Marvel stuff. Oh yeah, but that's true. He plays, uh, uh, I'm drawing a blank on his last name, but he plays Ben in the Daredevil series. And I love the Daredevil series, the oh, new, newest okay. one. So he has a, actually a pretty important character uh, placement in, in Daredevil. He's he's this uh, investigative journalist that is trying to get at the heart of um, what Kingpin is doing to the city. Uh, cool. I did so, see yeah. that on there, but I didn't throw that on there because obviously I'd never seen that. So that's cool. Yeah. So that's why I, I recognize him from most, but I also recognized him from some of those other things as well. So, yeah. Cool. That's good. We wrapped that up. Um, Bill Paxton, where would you slam him into this movie? I actually have a very interesting uh, role that I wanted him to play. I just put Nick the Nazi. Yes, so did I. <laughs> Wouldn't that have been great? Yeah. 
I would, he would have knocked that out of the park. I think he would have Absolutely. done a great job. Absolutely. I'm giving That's you stuff. a virtual high five because that is nice. the most perfect placement for him. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is another real tough directorial trifecta. Well, um, I, had an e- I had an easy one. This is another easy one for me. Oh, well, then go ahead. DC Cab, St. Elmo's Fire, and The Lost Boys. Shit. See, that's what I say by heart because I like that. But I went with Falling Down, The Client, and Batman Forever. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you're on the other end of his filmography spectrum. I think those two <laughs> Batman movies, uh, Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, they're so shitty. They're, they're <laughs> so bad. Batman and Robin specifically being one of the worst. But Batman Forever is is – I just love Jim Carrey as the Riddler in that he does. He's doing so much Jim, good Jim Carrey shit. And uh, I don't know. I think it's shitty, but I still love those movies. I, yeah, I don't necessarily mind them. They're terrible, but they're fun. Terrible. They're really sure. fun. Terrible. It is the most like kitschy and comic booky that those movies ever get. Like even Tim Burton's uh, version isn't fucking as wackadoo off the <laughs> rails as what Schumacher did. Agreed. Um, and he did falling down the client Batman forever. If this, if this holds any more weight in 93, 94, 95, I love a good like banger of, of that is a, that is an insane thing to do three years in a row. Well, and I will say that those movies that you picked in a lot of ways are quintessentially nineties movies. Whereas the ones I picked are in a lot of ways, quintessentially eighties movies. Yeah. Specific, that that specifically. might speak to just our, the, the ages we were when some of these movies were prevalent. Absolutely. And, you know, I have fond memories associated with those three movies and DC cab in particular, I've had a copy of it forever that I've been meaning to rewatch as I haven't watched it in so long, but like, I remember really loving that movie and I don't know if you've seen it, but it's I've got, never seen it. No, dude, you should watch it. Cause I think you would like it a lot. Now it, it may not have aged well, but it's, it's got Mr. T in it and Nick Nolte. Oh, fuck. I'm in. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's in the, it's from the eighties. It's like, so it's prime Nick Nolte or, uh, sorry. Um, not Nick, Nolte, Gary Busey. That's what I meant. Nick, uh, it's got They're Gary basically Busey. the same fucking person. <laughs> yeah. Gary Busey is just a more unhinged, like broke ass version of Nick Nolte. Yeah. But, yeah Gary Busey is definitely <laughs> a broke ass Nick Nolte. But yeah, so it's got Gary Busey and Mr. T alone. And that's, that's really insane. Yeah, and it's just like it's this ragtag uh, group of cab drivers and just all the they're just like kind of idiots and fucking meatheads and like the mayhem just ensues. And yeah, I just I really like that movie a, a lot. But it's a good one. That's, that's that I, I need your your trifecta is a good one. It made me rethink mine. Yeah. Well, um, and that's what I have. Okay. This I hope you didn't do a lot of research because this movie and I feel like we say this about a lot of movies, but this one is rich with some shit. There's a lot going on. I did a little fun fact wise. I I did a little bit. I wrote down some things, but did you want to do the body count before? Yeah, we'll do. Well, body count is is at the top of of the wiki wormhole. So we'll we'll start off the wiki wormhole with the body count. I did not look anything up. I just, I think I counted as I went along and obviously I watched this movie like a week ago. So I came up with six. Did you come up with a number? That's what I read. I read that there's six people. Oh, I feel so validated right now. There you go. The reason I came up with six is because I was struggling to remember how many of those uh, Cholo gang members actually died in the car crash. So I estimated three. 
and then Nick the Nazi gets it, that's four, and then the mm-hmm. golf guy gets it, that's five, and obviously defense dies, that's six. Yep. Okay, perfect. Um, you mentioned this, actually, but Michael Douglas considers this his favorite performance of all the movies he's been in um, at the time of the release, I should say. Uh, but not only that, Kirk Douglas uh, considers this to be his son's best performance. So yeah. there you go. Um, the man who is yelling about not being uh, economically viable in front of the bank is wearing the same clothes as defense down to the same pattern tie. Yeah. I did not, I I did not see that. I didn't notice that whatsoever, but it speaks to what you're saying as maybe it was a complete, like, I love the idea that he was literally, he, he's just like hallucinating. Yeah. Like, 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 uh, He's traversing this hot landscape, like almost like a mirage of sorts. Yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely like he's going on um, a certain spiritual journey in a lot of ways. Yeah, a spirit quest. It's it's a it's a it's, it's a, a, bad, ma- a maga spirit quest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a bad vibe maga spirit quest for sure. <laughs> um. I did not. I did not make this connection either. But uh, Iron Maiden's song "Man on the Edge" is based on this movie. Uh, obviously, they say "falling down" about 150 times in that song. So, right, I don't right. Know why I never made the connection? Um, may, probably because I I don't listen to those Blaze albums very often. <laughs> right, right, for sure. Nobody does. You know what? If they just didn't call it Iron Maiden, I'd be totally probably into those records. But it's just like I I don't I want to listen to Bruce and I don't want to listen to you get the Klansmen. I mean, you get some rippers off of off of those two albums. But for the most part, the best thing we got out of it was Bruce singing the Klansmen. <laughs> yeah, totally. And that's the thing. I don't want to go on a tangent too much. But I know. I when, know. <laughs> when you listen to those albums, you're like, yeah, these songs are cool, but I just want Bruce. And it's not... I hate to shit on Blaze Bailey because Blaze Bailey, you know, has a style that's not bad. It just doesn't it didn't fit the band. And really, honestly, they got him in the band because he looked like Bruce. That's really what it was. <laughs> yeah. Which is, you know, and which is weird because nothing none of that comes through on a record. <laughs> right. Anyways. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but not only that, the Foo Fighters music video for their song Walk is inspired by and mimics this movie. So yes, that's I, re- fun, I remember that video fun thing. Yeah, uh, the cashier at Whammy Burger, Sheila is her name. That is Michelle Pfeiffer's little sister. Yeah, and she appeared in the 2002 issue of Playboy, February 2002. Yeah, so gotta look that up for <laughs> purposes later. Yeah, uh, for uh, just for uh, you know for. Research. You know, re- research. research. Get out of my room. I'm still researching falling down. <laughs> we got to get into this. I'm not sure how much you knew about this, but I went into a real wormhole. This is the first time I made the connection. First time watching this movie, and I've seen it however many times I made it. I did not get the London Bridge is falling down connection. Not not as rampant as it is. It is like rampant. I, I got all of the obvious times that they were singing London Bridge is falling down and obviously that the movie's called falling down. Um, but there is just so much London bridge shit in, in this movie. Um, 
the the lyrics of the song, obviously, London Bridge is falling down, falling down, is is a reference to the movie's title. A bridge appears on the retirement cake of Pendergrast. And then moments later, when he punches the detective, he falls through the bridge. So there's some there's some some there. Um, Pendergrast also planned to retire to Lake Havasu. Now, this is where I went through the actual wormhole because it's mentioned in the movie uh, when he's talking to his partner that uh, she says, oh, yeah, I remember they moved it brick by brick. I just did not know. Did you know historically that they moved London Bridge brick by brick to Lake Havasu? No, I didn't. And I this stuff that you're talking about, I read about as well. So I didn't know any of any of that. And uh, yeah, it was interesting. I didn't immediately make all the connections to falling and London Bridge, et cetera, et cetera, until after I read it. And I won't go through all of the other instances of it. Like obviously the snow globe that he buys is playing London is playing London Bridge, but there's also a bunch of other London Bridge shit. I do want to get into the fact that, yes. London Bridge was moved brick by brick to Lake Havasu, Arizona um, in 1971. Which is crazy, like, of all places. Why why this dump? (laughs) It's so wild. So due to uneven construction, the bridge required frequent repairs, yet somehow survived 600 years. But as time passed, the bridge eventually began sinking at a rate of an inch every eight years, which in terms of a bridge, that's actually, like... Catastrophic. So, <laughs> yeah. In 1967, the Common Council of City of London began to look for potential buyers for London Bridge. I mean, we're talking about the London Bridge where, like, William Wallace's fucking head was displayed, and not to mention, <laughs> like, a ghoulish amount of other shit. People hung, uh, beheadings, all sorts of shit. People, they, they looked for a buyer for it, and a chainsaw magnate named Robert P. McCullough Sr., so a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, he's the founder of Lake Havasu, and he had the winning bid of $2.4 million on April 18th, 1968, which is the equivalent of $17 million in today's money. And then they moved the bridge, brick by brick, to Lake Havasu, where you can visit London Bridge to this day. That's, that's so insane. <laughs> it, it, it's one of the wilder things I think I've ever read and that I've never known. Historically, I never knew that whatsoever which is fucking wild. Yeah. And, and just in general, there's other references to falling. The, the, the word falling is mentioned, you know, yeah, that's what I was going to say. I didn't want to get into all it's mentioned repeatedly. Like when he's like talking to that construction worker and it's like, what are you exact? What are you doing exactly? He's like, I'm making sure people don't fall, you know, fall down or falling or fall through the construction or whatever. Like it's, yeah, it's throughout the movie. If you watch it with a, with your ears peaked to hear London bridge shit or falling down, uh, references. It's like every other, it's every other scene. Yeah. Seemingly. Okay. Um, moving on in the movie, Bill Foster, uh, is referred to as being in his late thirties, but Michael Douglas was 48 at the time of the movie. Um, that he looks great though. He doesn't look like he's in his thirties, but he does not look 48. So, nope. Yeah, we'll say that. So in terms of potential casting, Jack Nicholson, Ed Harris, Robert De Niro, Alec Baldwin, Jeff Bridges, Nick Nolte, Mel Gibson, Michael Keaton, Robin Williams and Harrison Ford were all considered for the role of defense. 
Yeah, that's a that's a that's a stacked list. That is a fucking stack. Oh, I, did, that, I didn't even throw in Dustin Hoffman and Al Pacino. I, sorry, they're on here too. Yeah, all A listers, of course. Al Pacino, that would have been bad because he would have <laughs> dialed that up to a level that this movie did not need. Right. Um, <laughs> speaking of of casting, Gene Hackman, Walter Matthau, Sidney Poitier, Paul Newman, and Jason Robards and Jack Lemmon were considered for the role of Prendergast. Um, so I, I, yeah. I think they cast it perfectly. I don't like any of those more than um, what we got. And mm-hmm. Dennis Hopper was considered to direct. So I, I feel like that would have been nuts. <laughs> yeah, that would have been interesting for sure. I'm not sure what, what that would have looked like, but I'm, I'm here for it. <laughs> um, let's see. Lois Smith. This is interesting. She plays uh, Michael Douglas's mother in the movie. He, she is also his secretary in Fatal Attraction. Yeah. So that's fucking wild. I haven't, I haven't watched Fatal Attraction in a long time either. So I actually watched it recently. Okay. Um, it's fucking wild. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I think it's still great. I don't know how much of a Simpsons guy you are. Uh, only early, early seasons. I don't really go too far into it. Do you remember Frank Grimes? See, I, I don't, and I read this as well, but I don't remember this character. This is really wild shit, just because I'm very familiar with the Simpsons episode. I'm a huge Simpsons guy, and obviously I watched this as a kid, not making a connection to Falling Down, but the Frank Grimes character in The Simpsons is specifically supposed to be like defense and uh it he's driven mad by by homer's reckless like workplace uh, <laughs> uh the way he runs his workstation and all that um, yeah but that aside so if you if you're familiar with the simpsons the frank grimes connection is is crazy but what's wild is robert duvall who act who uh who the show's Frank Grimes character is, uh, I'm sorry, Michael Douglas, who the show's Frank Grimes character is modeled after Robert Duvall would later play a police officer with the same name in John Q. So long story short, Robert Duvall played a character named Frank Grimes in John Q. (laughs) Yeah. There's no easy way to say that. It's such a fucking convoluted thing. Basically Robert Duvall played a character named Frank Grimes, which is basically modeled after Michael Douglas's character in falling down in John Q. <laughs> if that all, if that, if that isn't convoluted as fuck. Uh, yeah. I feel like there, there's a few instances of this where there's like characters that were, you know, have a name and this that also were in another movie with the same name and vice versa or whatever. Yeah, it's really, it's, <laughs> it's one of those situations. Yeah. I looked this up specifically for you, my, my dear friend, um, mm. all the car stuff. Did you see the car shit? I did. I did read all the car stuff. Thank you. So for our, our, our listeners, Prendergast drives a 1985 Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme Brogum. <laughs> or a bro, Brohum. Brohum. Yeah, okay. it'd be like a Brohum. A Brohum, of course. Uh, <laughs> he drives a 1985 Oldsmobile Pennywise. Uh, Bill Foster's car was a 1978 Chevy Chevette. Chevette, yeah. And the car doing the drive-by was a 1968 Chevy Impala Sport Coupe. And a very nice, a beauty of a car. Yes. None of that means anything to me. I just, I looked, <laughs> I looked that up specifically for anyone that cares. Thank um, you. And I, and I did. So I appreciate it. Good, good. 
The 85 cents that Mr. Lee is charging for the soda would come out to $1.55 in today's money. Which is close to what you pay for a can of soda. I mean, it's a- is how much you would pay. That extra five cents is what drove defense over the edge. <laughs> yeah. What did you have, fun, fun fact-wise, to throw onto that shit heap? So the movie was speaking of, to jump off of what you're talking about with the, uh, the, the convenience store guy, the movie was banned in South Korea because of its portrayal of Koreans. Yeah. I, so that's, that seems par for the course. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 legit. Yeah, uh, there are three stars from Apocalypse Now mm-hmm. also in this movie: mm-hmm. uh, Robert Duvall, um, Frederick Forrest, and there's one other guy who I'm drawing a blank on. And so this is kind of a weird, deep music cut, a obscure music cut. Um, but there is, was a group called SPK. Um, they were an Australian industrial group and I really like them a lot. There's one album of theirs in particular that I love, but the main, the, the brainchild of SPK, a guy named Graham Revell, he eventually, uh, about towards the end of SPK's recording career, got more and more involved in doing soundtrack work, but he did, uh, he, he did start working on, the soundtrack for this movie and it was rejected. So I did see that name. I saw Graham Revell. Um, I saw that name that he, he had submitted a rejected, uh, yeah. A rejected score. That's weird. Yeah. And it's interesting because if you, if you dig into the history of industrial music or experimental electronic music, uh, you will find instances of this where there are soundtracks that are offered or uh, commissioned to some of these groups and they eventually get rejected. Like Coil. Coil is a prime example of this. Coil actually wrote the original soundtrack to Hellraiser and it was eventually rejected as being, I don't know, too obscure or weird. So eventually, fucking weird. Yeah. Um, uh, Clyde Barker liked Coil and he was friends with them. And so he asked them to do it. And then the studio actually rejected their soundtrack. And then they, you know, subsequently picked up Christopher Young, who did a fantastic job. Also, I I love I love Christopher Young's soundtrack as well. But it's it's more Hollywood movie bombast as opposed to the Coil soundtrack, which is just creepy electronic music so anyway so graham revel is you know kind of from that that uh so that substrata of experimental music that also got into doing movie soundtracks so i'm glad you mentioned that because i saw that name but i didn't it didn't ring a bell for me obviously so yeah good that's what that's all i have all right well let's uh rate this bad boy and uh be on our way here um so first we'll start off with the on the clock rating of how close to a midnight movie this is. Where would you throw it? Uh, I don't know. That's I would say this is one. like, it's like an 11 o'clock maybe. I said 1130. Yeah. Yeah. It's close to being midnight. Um, mm-hmm. Definitely. the Once you get to Nazi Nick, you're getting into midnight territory there. <laughs> abs, abs, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> this fucking homophobic rant is, 
it puts it a, a, a alone. That rant is a midnight rant, but that that rant just covers the gamut of just hating people, of hating everyone. It's it's a lot, and then there is a uh, quasi sexual assault scene that we didn't even mention, where he's right. whispering shit that would kind of implicate the fact that he's gay and is just very repressed. <laughs> like, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, and. I chose for the iconography of our rating tonight, uh, regurgitated whammy burger. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. I would have said the uh, broken glasses of defense. Oh, a cracked lens. uh, uh, Yeah. Black full rimmed uh, pair of glasses. Yeah, but I I do like the regurgitated whammy burger better. I want to give that woman props. So the regurgitated whammy – how many regurgitated whammy burgers? And I have a feeling you have a tough time rating this movie because you can't be like – this is a hard movie to be like. I love – I say this all the time. I love falling down. But, you know, without having to explain myself, that's a tough thing to say. I'll say this. I think our discussion just alone has helped to clarify some things with this movie for me. So subsequent watches of it, I would probably like it better. But on this watch this time, I would say, I mean, I was struggling with it a bit. So I'll give it a two and a half. But it has potential to get bumped up for sure. Okay. I, um, as we have been this this entire episode, I'm just on... On the opposite end of that, in terms of intrinsically enjoying uh, this movie for what it is and him traversing the L.A. landscape and the Prendergast stuff, I I endlessly watch it and it, it still has replay value uh, despite a lot of stuff that hasn't aged well. Uh, having said sure. that, I gave it a four out of five because I, I obviously wouldn't watch this movie as many times as I have if I didn't fucking love it so yeah and that's a a four that's the thing you know obviously throughout the discussion of various movies we've had some that we've been more in sync with but then there's these movies that i feel like we're more opposed to where we have some sort of connection to it that makes it special to us and gives it more repeat uh watch value as opposed to you know like you know we don't really have that connection with it and it's like well whatever it's it's fine it's not a it's not a terrible movie but you know it's not something that like gives me any comfort and obviously this is a comfort movie for you which is a fucked up comfort movie but it is (laughs) it is i mean i think everybody has those where you're just like what what how can how is this a movie that you can relax to falling down birth of a nation and necromantic (laughs) those are my fucking comfort movies and i don't want i don't want to hear anything about it okay (laughs) (laughs) um okay so (laughs) what's on the next episode um we are in the home stretch of our first season and from what we've talked about, I'm going to pick the next one and then you're going to pick our finale to season one and then we'll pick up season two here uh, later this year. Right. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I'm kind of excited to get to the one that I'm going to pick. Oh, you already I know. Oh, I know. Shoot. And so but, well, I have to choose one. Um, yeah. Let me go into the vault here and and look at what I have for choices. Um. I am going to go with um, the entity. Have you seen the entity? Ah, uh, oh, 
I'm glad that you picked that because this is another movie that I don't think I've seen, but I've been wanting to to see forever. So I think that is a fantastic pick. Let's watch the entity. It's um, I hate to do back to back really heavy subject matter, uh, right? But the entity has uh, as a forewarning for anyone tuning into the next episode, very intense sexual assault and, and rape sequences that might be, uh, very triggering for some individuals. Right. So, and I, I hate to do two things heavy back to back, but the entity I, I feel like is a, is a, it's not a undercover fun horror movie, but it is a, I think it's a horror movie. A lot of people it has slipped under a lot of people's radars. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So cool. I'm, I'm stoked to watch that and talk about it. Great. This has been another deep dive into Midnight Movie Madness. Big thanks to Charlotte Blythe for providing our intro music. Our outro music is brought to you by Overpower. If you're a band looking to submit a song or a listener looking to submit a question, feel free to shoot us an email at midnightflixpod at gmail.com or hit us up on Instagram at midnightflixpod, F-L-I-X. For Adam Walker, I'm Pat Mitchell. See you on the other side. Pew, pew, pew. Okay, I'm gonna <laughs> finger gun. Yep, that's what it was. Finger gun.